Please turn with me in your Bibles to Titus 3. Today we're going to finish our study in the uh, pastoral epistles. It's been a while since we've been there. Uh, the last couple weeks we've been out, either at Blowing Springs, and last week we were installing deacons. So it's good to be back to finish up our, our study on the pastoral epistles. Um, today we do, as we mentioned to you before, we're finishing up the book of Titus. As we recall and remember that he was ministering on the island of Crete. And these letters that were being passed to Titus were, were meant to be spread throughout all the churches throughout the island. And as we will see through this uh, passage in chapter 1, just to recall, we're going to see a theme of duty and doctrine. In chapter 1, the focus of duty and doctrine was within the church. And if you remember, we spent time unpacking the qualifications of elders and deacons. And then in chapter 2, the idea of duty and doctrine was pertaining to the home, in which he was talking about older men and older women and younger men and younger women and how they are to live and respond. And today we get the opportunity to talk about duty and doctrine in regards to how we are called to live in the world, how we are to respond and to be good neighbors and good citizens to the world that we live. So this morning, let's stand together as we read God's holy inspired word, chapter 3 of the book of Titus. Chapter 3, remind them to be submissive to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient to the ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our day with malice and envy, hatred by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us not because of works done in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels among, about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up dissension or division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to the good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in faith. Grace be with you all. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, it's comforting to know that through the work of your Spirit, you have opened our eyes and ears to see your good deeds and to hear the glories of your wonderful works. Lord, I pray today that you would, may the words of my mouth not fall in deaf ears. May you open our ears so that we can hear your word and let it penetrate deep into our hearts. Lord, convict us where we need convicting. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. Comfort us where we need to be comforted. Lord, I pray, too, that you would use me as you see fit to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And we pray this all in your name. Amen. You may be seated. 
I'm not sure about you, but uh, I really enjoy the fall weather. There's so much to enjoy about the fall. One of the things I love is college football, apple cider, flannel shirts, but I love the cool weather when it comes at night, right? When it gets real low. And at our house, I don't know about you, but we like to open up the windows and so the cool air comes right on in. But as I uh, come into bed, then it's nice and warm underneath the blankets, right? So it's nice and warm and, and snuggling underneath there. Um, as well as that's what I like to do, but there's also a problem with that. Because at six o'clock in the morning when my alarm goes off, it's also nice and chilly outside and warm underneath the covers. The last thing I wanna do is come out of bed, right? So what's my motivation though for getting out of bed? I need to get out for some reason. So my question to you though is, what's your motivation for getting out of bed in the morning? Is it the reward of a good cup of warm coffee? The smell of cinnamon rolls in the oven? Is it the, is it the responsibility that knowing that your children will be up in short time and they're also going to need food and help? Is it a feeling of guilt? Is it a feeling of fear? Is it a feeling of wanting to come downstairs to get your homework done and get it done as soon as possible? Is it the opportunity to go and desire to go and make money so that I can have nice things? Is it a fear of what others might think if you're, heaven forbid, in bed at 5.30 in the morning, right? What drives you to get out of bed? Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever asked the question, what motivates you every day and every moment of your life? In the final chapter of Titus 3, Paul calls us to be ready and devoted for every good work. See, the people at Crete were known for their legalism and their licentiousness. They were known for doing things motivated, not rooted in the gospel, but to proclaim themselves. Some of them were focused on excessive adherence to the law, while others were unprincipled and unbridled, and they took full advantage of the gospel message. As followers of Christ, we can also fall into the same mindset as the church in Crete. We find ourselves with the wrong motivation towards the things of this world. And at other times, we live legalistically, an excessive adherence to the law, we miss out on the beautiful gospel that's portrayed to us through Jesus Christ as we are called to be motivated to love others as ambassadors for Christ. The call to good deeds is what we see here in chapter 3 and to love those around us must be understood as the foundation of our hope that comes through Jesus Christ who has washed us, cleansed us, and empowered us for the work that he has called us to do. So today we're going to unpack how we are called to live in the world with, with finding our need, with our relationships of grace, our remembering our grace, and how to live in response to God's grace. So this morning, so let's unpack this, this big chapter this morning. So right away, in chapter, like in chapter 2, Paul calls upon the church to walk in a manner that calls to glorify him. And Paul identifies seven virtues that we as Christians are to, to display. So let me read them to you this morning. Submission to the rulers, obedience to the authorities, readiness for good work, tongues that refrain from evil, and hearts that are not quarrelsome, but instead are gentle and courteous to all. Now the people of Crete were known, it's really helpful for us, were notorious for their bad character. In fact, in 67 AD, or BC, sorry, they came under the control of the Roman Empire. And ever since then, they were known for insurrections, bad character, crimes, murders, and wars. 
They were rebelling against all authority that had been placed upon them by the Roman government. And so in these words, Paul is reminding the church in Crete and us that we are called to be good citizens and good neighbors to those around us. Paul instructs Titus to remind these people of what they've heard before. You see, what they have heard before, they knew what they, the, this teaching is not new to them. They have been reminded of this. As God's people, we are to remember the teachings of God. A failure to remember can cause many hardships. A bad memory of who God is and what he has taught us can lead us into failure and struggle. The people of God, if you remember, it's hardships and our failure to remember is what caused the downfall of Israel. If you remember in Exodus, they crossed the Red Sea and they see this amazing work by God. And the moment they've crossed the Red Sea, they immediately forget what had just happened. It was their failure to remember as they came upon the Jordan River and entered into the promised land. Their failure to remember who God is and what he has done it caused heartache for them. Now in this passage, if you recall, way back earlier this summer in 1 Timothy, when we were going through, Paul called us to pray for those in authority. And now he takes it a step further and he calls us and reminds us to not only to submit to obey those who have been placed in authority. Now let me be very clear here. Paul is not calling us to worship or to give unconditional allegiance to our people who have been placed in authority above us. But as citizens of both the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, he calls us to submit to the state. Now throughout the New Testament where we read Christian re Christians render civil obedience to various places. For starters, the church is not to rival or secular authorities, but to serve the gospel mission of Jesus Christ in where we are focusing in on making disciples of all nations. Our focus is completely different than those above us. And since God's sovereignty established civil authorities, the Bible teaches believers are to respect them in a way of rendering honor to the Lord. This classic statement of principle appears in Romans 13.1. Let me read to you this morning. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and God has instituted all those that exist. So it is true that Christians must not disobey God's word to render civil obedience. And so at some times, I think it is a good reminder for us that we will sometimes need to accept persecution at the price of obeying God rather than man, as what we saw in Peter and in John, as they refused to adhere to the Jewish Sanhedrin. But as so far as we can and we are able to follow Jesus' teachings, we are to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And this is what we are called to do. And I'm called to remind us this morning. Now to remind, as I mentioned before, is not to teach and instead is to guide and direct. Many times Kelly needs to remind me that I need to shut the lights off after I leave a room, right? She doesn't need to teach me how to do this. I do know how to flip a switch whether she questions that or not. Now, I do know how to do it. So the people of Crete have been told. They are told what it means to live in response to the authorities that have been placed above them. They are to be good citizens in the public square. As a reminder for us that we too are called to be good citizens. And a good reminder for us as we live in a very cultural time and a heated political divisions that we are called to render to what is Caesar's, to Caesar, and to God, what is God's, and to walk in obedience. To be good citizens is what we are called to do. But in addition to that, Paul calls us not only to be good citizens, but to be good neighbors. 
Paul turns the address to our relations with everybody in our community. And while the public conduct of Christians is important, so is our behavior with personal relationships that we have within our community and our neighborhoods. So let me ask the question. How, if you had a neighbor who's an unbeliever, what would they say about you? How would they talk about you? If I was to ask them today, would they say they are a person of great conduct? They're kind and gentle. Would they say they're selfish and needy? What would they say about you as you conduct yourself in your neighborhood, around your pool, around the playgrounds? What would they say about you? Have you ever asked that question? Because who we are and who we represent is a big deal to them. The Apostle Paul talks about how we are to conduct ourselves in our neighborhood. And he talks about this in ways, he says, we are not to do two things in a negative way, and he's also going to tell us the two positive things that we are called to do as well. The first, the two negative attributes. He says that we are not to slander others and not to be quarrelsome. Whether we are to be neither offensive nor argumentative in either speech and behavior. We are called to be encouraging and above reproach. Graciousness starts with our speech. This command does not mean Christians are to never correct bad behavior, because Paul does that in the books of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, that we've read this, this summer. And rather, he is warning us against evil slander and malicious gossip. To put it simply, we are to restrain our natural inclinations to say the worst about people. Not only is it insulting and malicious, it's out of step with the fruits of the Spirit, but it also casts a poor light upon our faith. We are called not to speak poorly of the neighbors around us, right? We are called to, to not talk about them in such a way that doesn't bring light to Christ, about the man who may have a collection of cars in his driveway, or perhaps the person who has made his front yard a junkyard, or perhaps it's a person who has a political uh, politician that they are supporting that is opposite than you. We don't call them. Or perhaps it's a neighbor who has a dog that likes to speak late at night, right? We're not to talk evil about them or maliciously or to slander them to others, but to demonstrate kindness and generosity. Instead, he calls upon the positive attributes, attributes that we are to play gentle and to show perfect courtesy. Another way of saying would be consider to show humility towards all men, that we are called to be humble and courteous, to be polite and meek. You may even say that, that we are to embody the life and the characteristics of Jesus Christ, who was kind and gentle and showed great gentleness to all men. As believers, we are to be gracious with our speech, speaking evil of no one, to avoid quarreling as it bears Christians' peace. But we must pursue harmony and hope with relationships. We're encouraged to encourage, support our neighbors. Not only are we called to do this, mainly to show that we have a believing life of who we are in Jesus Christ. Now, the, the call, the task to be a good citizen and a good neighbor is not an easy task. Let's be honest. It is a lot easier for us to slander, to be malicious, to be mean, to talk about others. It's easy to talk in private about those who have hurt us, who don't live the way that we desire for them to live. But when someone behaves in a manner that rubs us the wrong ways, it's easy to let our tongues tear others down, and that's not what we're called to do. 
I was reminded this past week as I was studying 2 Corinthians Corinthians 5 that we are called to be ambassadors for Christ. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us, and we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. I was an ambassador as, at, a, at the university I was as, as an undergrad, and I always had a jacket on, and everybody knew that you were an ambassador, right? An ambassador leads people around the college and tells them all about it as an ambassador. But there's times that I could come and I could put the jacket on to be an ambassador, and everybody knew that what I was doing. But then I could always go back to my dorm room, I could take my jacket off, and I was no longer an ambassador for the university. But as ambassadors for Christ, we never take our jacket off. Whether, wherever we live, work, and play, whether it's in the gym, it's around the pool, it's at the playground, we are ambassadors for Christ, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to those around us. And so graciousness, as we said before, starts with our tongue. How are we talking and demonstrating the hope of Christ in us? Now, the motivation. So what's our motivation for doing that, to be good citizens and to be good neighbors? What's our motivation? And so Paul turns it, and he turns this, and he says in verse 3, he tells us what's our motivation. So after giving this demonstration of kindness, he tells us how we are to expect Christians to behave responsibly as public life. How we can think of these verses, why are we ambassadors for Christ in the public square? Why are we doing what we're called to do? Now, let me give you a good illustration. I used this with the youth last week. How many, I love going to the grocery store uh, when I was a kid with my mom. It was fun. She would throw things in there and we'd see what we're going to eat. And I know my kids love going to go in the grocery store as well. But have you ever seen that grocery store carts have a flaw, right? You go into this terminal at Walmart and you see all the carts and you grab one and you're hoping that you don't get one with a bad wheel. Right, And you know that the truth of the matter comes when you hit the fruits and vegetables section, whether or not it's going to be an easy time in Walmart or it's going to be a struggle. If you're going to be fighting the cart the entire time through. All of us, and we instinctively fight like us, we instinctively fight and we have bad hearts. Like the bad wheel in the cart, we have a bad heart that we are fighting of who we were. Instinctively, those carts run and veer this way or that way, running into the aisle or, heaven forbid, somebody at Walmart who's restocking the shelves. Like a bad wheel in the shopping cart, our hearts were once foolish and disobedient. They were veering off, leading us astray from what we were created to be. We were created to roll through life bearing God's fruit, but instead, every one of us has hearts that were deceitful and terrible full of malice, led astray. We are various slaves to various passions and pleasures. This is who we once were. Before our time with Christ, we had bad hearts, hearts of stone. In the same way, we were like our unbelieving neighbors. And remembering who we once were makes us see them as sinners to be saved in hope of the the gospel. They're not a project, somebody to be defeated, but somebody who needs to be rescued by the hope of Jesus Christ. And I would hope that when we recognize who we are, that we would demonstrate compassion to our neighbors, that we would treat them with grace and mercy and love, because that's who we once were. 
Ask yourself, when's the last time you've thought about the fact that Christ has saved you? What you have, who you once were? Did Christ throw you under the bus and, and disregard you for who you were before Christ? Before you came to understanding of the gospel? Or is understanding by his grace, by his sovereignty and his patience, he led you to him? That is great motivation in helping us to understand who we once were. And while remembering who we once were is that definite motivation for us to loving others. But it's, it's not enough. When we understand who we once were, but we've also been saved by God's loving kindness. That he saves us not because work's done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Paul points out that remembering God's grace for us in response to our sins will radically shape our priorities. Our motivation for being a good citizen and to being a good neighbor is not rooted in legalism of following God, but in the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior, who saved us not because of anything we have done, but because of his mercy. Our salvation flows from the goodness of God, period. Jesus came into the world to save sinners by shedding his blood. And in Titus 3, he writes, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, appear, our Savior, appeared. The word appeared, it's, it's a great way of saying, if you look back in, in Titus 2, he says the same thing. It appeared in 2.11. Paul is saying the grace of God has appeared in the ministry of Jesus Christ, in the loving kindness of our God, our Savior. We can go back to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God our Savior appeared in the life and the body of Jesus Christ who shed his blood on our behalf. That's how it appeared. He saved us not because of our righteousness, because of what we deserve, as Bill mentioned to the kids, but because of his mercy and his grace. God's good, loving, and merciful nature is the reason for grace. It's a simple but profound statement. He saves us. As my good friend Cliss Huss used to say, the only thing that we bring to the salvation story is the problem. That's what we bring. We bring a dysfunctional shopping cart with bad wheels. Now, how many of you know the difference, though, between mercy and grace? I think a lot of times we get them confused. So let me give you a good illustration. I have a stop sign by my house. And some people think it's optional because it has white lines around the outside of it. Now, what happens is people come to the stop sign and they either don't stop or they barely hit the brakes hoping that they don't hit a dog or a small child and continue on, right? Now, a lot of times there's a police officer that might sit in the parking lot and they have a heyday. And I just watch them. And they pull lots of people over. Now, when a police officer pulls somebody over who goes through the stops and they come up to the sign and they say, do you know why I pulled you over? And the person says, yes, I ran a stop sign. Right? They broke the law. Now, mercy would be saying to them, I'm not going to give you a ticket. That's mercy. They deserve a ticket. They are not going to get the ticket. But the ticket must be paid. They broke the law, right? That is mercy. God has extended his mercy to us. 
What you deserve, you're not getting through his loving kindness and his mercy. Because of who you are as a bad shopping cart with broken wheels. But there's more. And I think this is the great part. He doesn't just give us mercy. He also gives us grace. Here we encounter the resources of, the resource of God's grace centering on the life-giving ministry of the Holy Spirit through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out to us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope that we have of eternal life. Let me continue my illustration. Mercy, right, is letting us off and not giving us what we deserve. But in this case, grace is saying, I have to, a responsibility, it needs to be paid. You broke the law. The police officer then put it in, report it, but then when that goes to court, when it needs to be paid, the police officer would go on our behalf and pay the very penalty for the ticket that we deserve. That's grace. We didn't deserve it. We broke the person who ran through the stop sign. They deserved the ticket. That's grace. That's motivation. That's inspiration for what we do because it's nothing of our own works, but only by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he says is through the washing of regeneration. Now, you may ask the question, that's a big word. What is regeneration, Brandon? Louis Burkhoff defines it in this way. The act of God by which the principle of new life is implanted in the man. The governing disposition of the soul is made holy and the first exercise of his new disposition, namely saving faith, is secured. To put it simply, regeneration is the new birth by which spiritually dead sinners are brought to life. We've been brought to life through the washing of regeneration through the Holy Spirit. It is John 3, right? When he tells Nicodemus, you must be born again, how can I do that? Through the washing of regeneration. That we've been brought to life. Regeneration is often called conversion since it affects a radical break from the life that we once had to a life that we once now described. It's more than just fixing our broken wheels. He gives us a new heart. The new heart begins a new life characterized by a life described in the book of Titus to be good citizens and to be good neighbors, to do good works. But in addition to the washing of regeneration, we have the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So what's that mean? Where regeneration affects a radical change in the believer's life, the process of renewal is the ongoing work of sanctification in our life, where Christ is increasingly conformed to the character of Christ in his holiness and in his love for others. There is once a renewal for believers is the gift of saving life, and still the Holy Spirit continues in a life of sanctification, that we are constantly becoming more and more like Christ. The work of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts to conform us with our language and our behavior. And so I can tell you that Paul's language here highlights two aspects of the Holy Spirit's work in both regeneration and renewal. It's a decisive break. And through the work of Christ, we have become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And we've been declared righteous by faith in Christ. While we were once guilty, Christ paid the penalty for our sins. 
and when he died on our place on the cross, and moreover, through faith, his perfect obedience was imputed to us, so the divine justice, the issue of verdict of righteousness, is given to us by God, by grace, through faith in Christ. It's for this very reason that we can devote ourselves to good works. It is the very motivation that gets us out of bed in the morning because of what Christ has done for us. We have an opportunity to respond to God's grace. Every day, every moment, we have an opportunity to proclaim the good news of the gospel, to be ambassadors for Christ. So he calls us to respond in verses 8 through 15. How are we to respond in grace? Paul has not yet finished the topic it was at hand. And he says, I want to insist on you these things that you have believed in God, that you may be careful to devote yourselves to good works. I think so often we think of Paul as a great theologian, which he is. But he is also very characteristic of, of helping us move and understand how it is to live in this world. But in, it's very important within Pauline theology that we understand the order of salvation. Christians are justified by, through faith alone, apart from our good works. But good works are important, important and even necessary as a response. Their results, not the cause of our union with Christ. It's always that Paul's order with faith and works. Whenever works are placed before faith, Paul saw that the entire gospel was being corrupted and nullified. But we are called to respond. Faith not only comes before good works, but it is essential in motivating and forming our good works. And it's this very reason that he calls us to do good works and produce a life that is generous, that is, that is productive, that is faithful to what he's called us to do. And while we emphasize the vital role of the biblical truth, and I think that's very important, we must ensure that we carefully devote ourselves to good works. Biblical knowledge is never an end in itself. It is a means necessary to receive the blessings of salvation that glorifies God in a radically changed life. The vitality that comes to us through God's must, must bear good fruit. We should live in response to the good fruit, the good grace that he has given to us. Now, several commentaries... Um, so commentaries have identified the phrase devotion to good works. You've probably heard me say that plenty of times this morning. But it is a major theme within the Gospels and the pastoral epistles, in, in fact. Fourteen times between 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, it is mentioned the idea of good works. I had a professor seminary that every class that we took when we go through a book, we always talk about what words uh, are repeated most often or a phrase most often within a book. It helps you understand what is the theme that the author is getting at. The same thing happens in our own lives, right? Whatever you talk about the most probably is the thing that matters to you the most. So whether it's your football team or, or, or an outfit or whatever is going on, what matters to you the most is probably what you talk about the most. And so although good works do not accomplish salvation, they are evidence of a life changed by the mercy and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We do good works not to save us, but they are essential and evident of a changed heart. So let me ask you this question. Sometimes when you come to the text and I'm told and you see the call to do good works, how many of you, uh, what goes on in your heart? 
And you're like, oh no, something else to do. Another thing that I can't manage to do. There's no way I'm going to measure up to this one. College students, when they would always read God's word, it was always like, oh man, something else. Some, some people struggled because they saw God's word as a law and things that they had to accomplish. But when we understand that the gospel is at the root and is the motivation, it should inspire us, call us to do good deeds. Now in verses 9 through 11, just as he is called to devote ourselves to the things that are profitable, we are also called to avoid unprofitable things. He calls us to avoid foolish arguments and controversies that are not profitable. Fighting with others is the exact opposite of what we read that is beneficial and profitable. Where there are good works that are profitable for building up foolish controversies, genealogies, quarrels about the law are not profitable. They are pointless, futile, and they get you nowhere. Now, let's, let's pump the brakes here for a second, right? What is Paul talking about? Generally talks these things that are, are honest, or let me tell you, these, these conversations that we are having um, are honest, right? He's not talking about biblical truth. He's not talking about biblical or doctrinal precision that we can discuss. But when the spirit of these discussions is criticism or rivalry or argument, even the most healthy discussions are, can lead to a dead end. We can ruin our witness or fail to demonstrate the hope in Christ upon these very delicate issues if we are mean-spirited in them. And so we are called to demonstrate good, profitable discussion. Now, at the end of this passage, or in the verses 12 through 15, Paul or, finishes up his letter to Titus, and he gives instructions and some miscellaneous things to do. But we see here that there is great value in it, as, with a picture of gifted and experienced men in ministry zealously working together for good works of being played out. There is great encouragement from Paul to have others that are coming alongside him to encourage him in his walk as they do ministry together as we can see this. Um, I get made fun of a lot when I go to General Assembly because I like to hang out with uh, good friends of mine from seminary. Um, but it, it is some of the most encouraging time that I have to meet with friends that I had in seminary from Michael and Casey and Rich, to be encouraged by them, to be prayed with them as they encourage and as we encourage one another in our ministry of the gospel. What good news here that we need those kinds of people in our lives. Not only do we need them, but we need to be that encouraging to others, right? Parents, moms and dads, who are encouraging you as you minister to your kids, to your grandkids, Fathers, who's encouraging you as you minister to your kids? Who's encouraging you as you minister out in the world? Who's encouraging you in your ministry? Who is your Artemis or your Tychicus in your life? Do you have a Titus that will encourage you, support you in time of ministry? Because when they have those people, they can devote good works to each other to the urgent need of the gospel. We need those kinds of people in our lives. And I would encourage you to find those people or to be that person who is always helping you to inspire you to do good works for the gospel in response to what Christ has done. 
So in conclusion, Titus has taught us that God's grace saves us through the goodness and the loving kindness that appeared to us with our Savior. And it is by God's grace the Holy Spirit is poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. And God's loving kindness motivates us as daily we seek to be faithful to our call to our church, our homes, and in the world that we live. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. You have called us to be good neighbors, to be good citizens. And in the book of Titus, we are reminded of our call to be faithful in the home and in the church. But Lord, I thank you also for the motivation that you have given to us and the hope that we have in the gospel. Help us not to forgive, forget that. Who we once were in need of, of saving as well. And that you saved us, not because of anything good in us, but because of Jesus Christ, who is our only hope in this world. We pray this all in your name. Amen. We do have that.